Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. Well, as we settle back in, I want to spend a minute or two before we jump to our scripture reading just giving you a little reflection on my season of respite. So I had the last 40 days or so uh, just to step away from all of this. And um, for me, in, in 20 years, this is my 20th year of local church ministry, this was the first time I've had an extended break, and it was such an incredible gift. Um, I'm so thankful uh, to you all uh, for the space, and, and I'll, I'm already jumping ahead to the thank yous. I'll be a little bit insufferable with my thank yous, but it was such a gift to me. And so uh, I want to share a little bit about how that time was for me, uh, because I felt uplifted by you all, and, uh, and I also know you all went on a journey that I was maybe only semi-present to. And so as I step back in, I'm hoping to just catch up to where you have all been. Um, I went into the respite with really three hopes and I did my best to refrain from calling them goals because I was counseled not to call them goals. <laughs> As an Enneagram 3, the last thing I need is goals during a respite. <laughs> and, uh, but I hoped to just be present to God and to my family and to parts of my life that don't always get the attention that they are due. And so I really said, okay, those are the three buckets. Those are the three categories. And, and uh, it really, I just felt really gently led during the time. It was really uh, a gift. And so one of the things that happened is um, I came across this book called Attached to God by Crispin Mayfield. I, I've shared about it with some of you, but I uh, really want to recommend that book if you are interested in uh, just a fresh connection with God. And for me, I came up in this little subculture of evangelicalism, non-denominational, uh, that was uh, the whole kind of emphasis about connecting with God had to do with just pursuit of God, chasing God, being desperate for God, and there's, there's plenty of gift in that. But uh, this book gets into what was true of my experience was that over time you start feeling like your whole relationship with God depends on you, depends on the hours you log in prayer, depends on the passionate pursuit of your heart toward God. And uh, of course, as we know, any healthy relationship is not a one-way street. And so it began to be a burden that I was carrying without even realizing it, just this heaviness of I've got to check the boxes of staying connected to God. And, uh, and so Mayfield's a, a psychologist, and he describes that as an anxious attachment style that we feel like the, uh, you know, the relationship will fall apart if we don't do our part in it. And so really insightful for me and just healing for me. And so I want to commend that to you. That was really helpful for me in the language of prayer during this time. And then for family, uh, Holly and I had uh, an extended time together. We got to have date nights together. Many of you for pastor's appreciation gave us little gift cards and things like that. And, and we got to go eat at restaurants and do things that, uh, you know, our wonderful children were at home with someone else. And it was awesome. It was so great. And, uh, and then we got to have two trips together. We went to Gatlinburg for a week with Holly's family. And then we went to Indiana again with Holly's family for Christmas and got to spend uh, some extended time together with the kids, which uh, 
Christmas for a pastor is often a busy season, and so to have a week where the kids were off of school and I was at home was super special. Um, and then finally, I just uh, got to lean into some rhythms for prayer, for sleep, for exercise, for our house, um, for laundry. Uh, didn't make too much progress on that last one. but uh, And then for school, I got to spend some time writing for my schoolwork. Uh, I've, uh, I've got one year left in my doctoral work, and I've got about three quarters of my paper left to write. So it's gonna be a really big year. And, uh, and I got to wrap my head around that a little bit. So all that to say, none of this would have been possible without the gift and the vision, the imagination of a group of people who say, yeah, we believe in rhythms. We believe in inhale and exhale. We believe in rest. We believe in sustainability. We believe in a long journey. And uh, so thank you to, for being a community like that. You all played a role in that, and starting with our vestry, who had a vision for this, who uh, gave me the gift of that space. Some of you gave me patience in conversations or meetings that needed to happen. Some of you brought us meals. Some of you gave me cards or texts of encouragement or resources, uh, offered your homes, offered your uh, getaway spaces. Uh, thank you, thank you. And in particular, I would be remiss to not just say a huge thank you to the staff. Um, they did not miss a beat. I don't know how many of the Sundays you were here during respite, but like there is so much that goes into doing this and like every little detail was just done so well, so excellently. And so uh, if you're new every year at the beginning of the year, we just introduce our staff, make sure everybody knows who they are. And so by way of saying thank you to them, let me also just introduce, uh, so Sarah, our family pastor in the back, uh, really had a dual role during respite and uh, was chief of staff and also our family pastor upstairs and downstairs at the same moment, which is not an easy task. And uh, there's little cumulative things that happen in this work, and Sarah really bore those over the last month or so so that I did not have to, and so thank you for that. And David handled so much of our gathering, planning, leading our music, leading all of the websites and print materials and projects, and there's so much that goes into that around the holidays. Uh, Morgan is just doing such an amazing job facilitating community through our house churches, through guys' nights, girls' nights, and lots of little things that happen behind the scenes uh, to, uh, to coordinate uh, and to allow community to take shape. And then Megan stepped in and preached one of the weeks I was gone. Uh, first time you've ever preached in a context like that and you just killed it. It was so, so great. Such a gift. If you have not heard that, I want to encourage you to go back, listen to the podcast. Benjamin was our priest in resident leading in communion and, uh, and it has been such a gift to me as well. And then John Ott spoke one week as well and, and did such a phenomenal job keeping us in our big story. So all that to say, thank you. Thank you for loving us well. Thank you for loving me well and uh, for the, the fact that we get to be a community like that. I'm really grateful. So with all that said, we're gonna jump to our sermon now. That was already my first mini sermon. I'll try to keep it short here on the backside, but it's time for the scripture reading. So Keely's gonna come up. She's gonna read from Isaiah chapter 42, if I remember correctly, and that'll lead us into the sermon. A reading from Isaiah 42, verses one through nine. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. 
he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am God. I have called you to live right and well. I have taken responsibility for you, kept you safe. I have given you as a covenant to the people and provided you as a lighthouse to the nations to make a start at bringing people into the open, into the light, opening blind eyes, releasing prisoners from dungeons, emptying the dark prisons. I am God, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Keely. All right, so I just shared some of my uh, reflections during respite. I have one more that uh, I want to bring, and it's uh, this, that the Bible, the Bible is a joke. The Bible is a joke. Uh, it's a gag. It's a prank. It's pulling our leg, and uh, it's trying to pull the legs out from under us. The Bible is a giant, big joke, right? Good, good words for right after a respite. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about during this time. It'll take me a minute to explain it. Uh, we just finished Christmas, and Christmas for me involves really two movies that I have to watch, or it's not Christmas. Uh, one of them is Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and so I got the flu at one point during, uh, during my respite, and that was a perfect excuse to watch Home Alone 2. Uh, and so that was great. And then the other one is Elf. Uh, it is not Christmas in our home, unless Elf is on. You guys are making faces at me in the back? Yeah. Those are great movies, Keely. Great movies. Elf. Uh, now, you all have seen Elf, right? Everybody's seen Elf, except for Morgan. Where are you, Morgan? Morgan, oh, Morgan just watched Elf for the first time, what, like a week ago? Yeah, and doesn't like it, doesn't think it's funny. So let's all turn and look at Morgan for a minute. Um, doesn't get it, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I know how much you love being the center of attention. Uh, no, I love Elf. I think it's just really, it's just something our family really enjoys. And this year for Christmas, we went to a musical theater version of Elf uh, in Indiana when we were out there with family. And, of course, in the musical theater version, they're trying to follow the story of the movie, but they're trying not to do exactly the same thing as the movie. And so what was happening was, at various points, there were just these little subtle references to the movie that were not quite under or explained in any meaningful way. And so there's just a narwhal that pops out at one point. It's like, bye, buddy. You know, and there's a coffee cart, and the name of the coffee cart is World's Greatest Cup of Coffee, right? These things are things that you don't understand unless you understand them unless you're rooted in the story. A great joke always requires a certain amount of unstated background knowledge in order to be understood. And so here's an example. If I tell you that a dolphin's favorite source of spiritual enrichment is the porpoise-driven life, uh, <laughs> I came up with that myself, y'all. 
think it's so funny. I was laughing to myself this week as I wrote that on a piece of paper. The porpoise-driven life. Okay, now that, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything unless you get the reference, right? It's still a terrible joke even if you get the reference. But a joke always relies on the hearer knowing more than what is actually said. To get the joke, you have to go beyond what is explicitly stated. You have to read between the lines. You have to be immersed enough in the story to get what is not said, not only what is said. And that is often what is happening in the Bible. Hence, the Bible is a joke. Uh, We're in the middle of this series that we've been in this entire fall, talking about a big enough story. And we're looking at the story of God, the story of everything, really, as a five-act drama. There's uh, act one of creation. And and since it's been a little while, I'll just re-catch us up. Uh, Act one reminds us that God's first word in the story is love. It's belovedness. It's blessing. It's wholeness. It's shalom. I love how Kenneth Tanner put it, that God makes what he loves, and he loves what he makes. And at Christmas, God becomes what he makes in order to be with it uh, forever. And so this is the story of a good creator who created all of it, and therefore it is good because the creator is good. And then act two, we spent a month on act two, this, this us part of the story where the brokenness of humanity, the disordered affections of humanity enter the story and the story that began with such orientation has a moment of disorientation. We have the fall into sin. We are introduced to the two twin enemies of God's story, the power of sin, the power of death. These are the great counter forces that try to move the world against what God's created intention was for the world. The the force of love that God created is, is pushed back on by sin, by death. And so this is the fall. Sin distorts the shalom and wholeness God intended for the world. It disrupts the story of Emmanuel, God with us, right? In the beginning, God is with us. But then we have uh, this, this uh, disruption in that story. And so uh, we spent some time on Act 2. And then Act 3, this promise. The promise that God is not giving up on his creation project. He promises to get the last word. And there's these three little components of that promise. This idea of a promised people a promised place, and a promised Messiah. And so from Abraham on, we find that God has this knack of always choosing people. He's always selecting people for the point, for the purpose of blessing them and then allowing them to be a blessing to the world around them, to tell his story to the world. And yes, they are broken as well as blessed, but through that brokenness, something is broken open in them so that they might be given away. Something can flow out of them, and God promises to be with them as that happens. And that's about in the story where I left off in November. And then Megan spoke, and Megan led us into the Exodus story. She led us out of the bondage of Egypt and into a reminder of God's promise to liberate the oppressed. And God did liberate the oppressed. We know the story, the Exodus. We are led out of the the bondage of Egypt and into the promised land. And there in the promised land, the people oscillated for years. I'm going to just fill in some blanks we didn't talk about in the story. They oscillated for years between upholding the covenantal relationship with God and then being unfaithful to it. 
But whenever they needed it the most, God would raise up a judge, a ruler, a leader, someone to save them from their trouble. And this happened over and over and over again so often that they began to notice the pattern. And they began to hope for one great ruler, one great judge, one great king, one great leader who would once and for all have the spirit of God poured out on them that they might lead them out of the ultimate bondage. Someone, a king whose kingdom would never end. A liberator, a messiah who would rescue them. And then that appeared to happen. In the 10th century uh, BCE, uh, we have the greatest glory Israel ever knew. King David, King Solomon, their kingdom had peace on all sides. They were the envy of the world. They have, uh, you know, everything that they would hope for. Their kingdom seems to be firmly established. And in celebration, they write these songs or these psalms, and they say things like, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad. Or long ago, God established his foundation, his throne in this world. And so surely this was the kingdom of God. Surely this was the advent of God. God had already advented to them, and life was good. But John Ott reminded us that uh, when life is good, we sometimes fail to remember God. We sometimes fail to reverence God. Uh, In some mysterious way, that almost seems easier in the harder times of life than in the prosperous times of life. And, uh, And so with things going so well, Israel forgot. And they put their trust in themselves, in their idols. They were forgetful of God, and they were met with this military disaster. And so in 741 BC, uh, the Assyrians took Israel captive. And then in 600 BC, the Babylonians did it again, and they were brought into exile. They're slaves again. They're making bricks again. Right? This is what they were delivered from. And they begin to wonder, is history just a sick cycle? Is it just a liar? What about that promised king? What about act three of the story, the king whose kingdom was never going to end? And there they they linger, they languish in exile for a while. Benjamin led us deeper into the Old Testament story. He pointed us toward the prophets and ultimately toward John the Baptist. He reminded us that the prophets are the ones who were holding a relentless bulldog-like grip to act three. Everybody else had kind of lost hope, but the prophets... They're saying, no, there is a promise. There's a promise to hold to. And God is going to call this promised people who are now exiled from the promised place to renew their covenant with God once more. And we see that in verse six of Isaiah 42 that Keely just read. You know, God is calling through the voice of the prophets. I call you to live right and well. I've taken responsibility for you. I've kept you safe. Those strange words to an exiled people. But I've given you as a covenant. I've chosen you. God's always choosing people. He sets them apart as a lighthouse to the nations. So that what? That they might, as chosen people, not revel in their own chosenness, but make a start at bringing people into the open, into the light, to open the blind eyes, to release the prisoners from dungeons, right? And of course, all this becomes the great job description of the Messiah. So when we see Jesus later on step in and open the scroll to to Isaiah, and he says, I am the one who has come to open the eyes of the blind, to release prisoners from dark, he's saying, I am the one who's going to guide you in this work. But for now, they're in exile. And the prophets begin to die. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, Ezekiel. And to Israel's horror, there are no new prophets born. The prophets eventually stop. 
And in this time of great confusion, the voice of God appears to go silent. And the silence of God, too, is God's word to us. And uh, the absence of God, too, what the ancients called the deus absconditus, the, the hiddenness of God, is part of the story, too. And that's where the Old Testament story comes to an end, this word of God that comes, and then for 400 years, no word of God. Silence. This crevasse of silence. This loud silence. No reassurance of Act 3. No reassurance of the promise. No voice of the prophets. And they wonder, has God abandoned us? Has the wilderness finally wiped out the promise? Has God given up on creation? And there's this long ache of anticipation. And then a tender cry of a baby breaks this silent night. God has come. Advent. Light has dawned. A star begins to shine on those walking in a long darkness. God's word moves into the neighborhood again, and the Christmas baby grows, and he becomes a man, and as a man, he reveals God to be the liberator, that ultimate promised Messiah, Jesus, the liberating king, a revelation of God in flesh. He is epiphany. And we have finally arrived at Act 4, where we're going to spend this new year. The rising king, Salvation, which begins with incarnation. God falls to a fallen world. He comes to us. He says, if you can't make it to me, I will make it to you. And Jesus, if we walk the story backwards, he fulfills the promise. Jesus, he says, I will be God with us. I'm going to heal us. And Jesus creates anew. And so in the season of Epiphany, we remember this, the, the, the Magi, but, but we remember something deeper as well. We are led to that blazing light of Christ ourselves, and we find that in the light of Christ, everything has changed. Everything has changed. Why has it all changed? Because Jesus said so. Behold, I make all things new. It's what we saw in Isaiah 42. The former things have come to pass. New things I declare to you. It's an epiphany because we suddenly start to see things different in the glowing light of Jesus. Old things, old parts of the story start to take on a new meaning. They start to mean something more significant. We're going to find that Jesus is the revelatory key to understand all of scripture. He is the light of the world that illumines what has been shrouded in mystery. We could not see or know God before fully, but now we can because God has come in the flesh as a human. God unveils God to humans by becoming a human epiphany. And we'll spend the rest of this, ad, uh, this epiphany season re-examining everything we've seen in the story so far. We're actually gonna walk backwards in the story, but... Now we're going to do it in the light of Christ because we're going to find that in the light of Christ, everything that has happened in the entire story up to this point means something new now. And this brings us back to this idea of the Bible being a joke. We've reached the point now where the Bible begins to do some fascinating things. It begins doing surprising things we might gloss over otherwise. The Bible is infinitely layered. It is full of illusions. It's hinting and nudging and winking at things that will only make sense a millennia later. And that's what we're starting to see. The New Testament is insistent that Jesus not only is going to restore all things, he's going to restory all things. 
And so in Jesus, there is a new creation, a new Adam, a new fall called incarnation. In Jesus, we're going to find that Genesis doesn't mean what it did before, that sin and death don't mean what they did before, that God's chosen people, God's promised place don't mean what they did before. In Jesus, there's a new Egypt and a new Exodus. There's a new lawgiver. There's a new covenant with new commands. In Jesus, there's a new family of God and a new spirit to guide God's people through life toward a new Jerusalem. In Jesus, there is a new you, a new me, epiphany. And so in the light of Jesus, all things are made new and everything has changed. And you have to know the story. You have to see what isn't said to get the joke of all of it. And next week, uh, I can't wait for next week. Um, I was uh, writing sermon notes for next week and already just getting really excited. We're going to look at what I think are some of the most loaded, fascinating things that Scripture does uh, in the book of John. But for now, I hope that we're just beginning to see as we wrap this up how fascinating, how intricate, how layered this big story is. That Christ, we find, wasn't just born at Bethlehem. Christ actually came way before Bethlehem, actually before the very beginning of all things. The fragile logos of God in a manger was also the one who spoke epiphany words thousands of years before that said, let there be light. And then speaks again, I am the light of the world. And I've come to you. The word of God is always at play in the pages that he authors, in the stories that he tells, including our stories. He's writing and rewriting them. He's making all things new. And so here's the takeaway for us today. We'll move to communion here in a moment. As this new year begins, uh, I want to remind us, first of all, we're not spectators in this story. We don't sit in the cheap seats of this story. We're invited onto the stage with a role to play, to shine the light, to reflect the light, is better said. To live in the epiphany light of a story bigger than us. And there's this theological principle that says when you take anything in Scripture and you hold it up to the light of Jesus, it means something different than it did before. And I wonder if that principle might be extended to say when you take anything in all of this world, including the little details of my life, whatever burden I brought in with me this morning, and I hold it up to the light of Christ, might it mean something different? Might it take on new significance? We receive lots of messages at the beginning of a new year about where to place our focus and what our vision should be, what our resolution should be. I want to just ask us now, and in fact, let's just do this now. I just allow you to go into your own space. You can close your eyes if you'd like, or just get in touch with what's going on in your own heart, that we might take our hopes and our questions and our fears, our vision, our goals. What do you need to place under the light of Christ? How much you bring the high points and the heartaches of your story? Place them under the light of Christ. And is there some deep confusion? Is there some place that just doesn't make any sense? And might it be that in the light of Christ, 
even that begins to mean something new. This, of course, does not solve our problems. It doesn't take away pain. But it reminds us God is with us in it. And so, God, as we enter this new year, may we do so captivated by a big story. May we do so as epiphany people, living under a great light, reflecting that light and asking that more and more we might stand in that light for the glory of your name. Amen.